0: Friends, Elisa Childers here. How did a successful Los Angeles cold case homicide detective come to faith in Christ? As a committed atheist, Jay Warner Wallace set out to solve the greatest cold case in history—the truth claims made by the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. Are the gospel accounts of Jesus' life actual eyewitness testimony? Jim tells us all about it on today's podcast. Our guest today is a cold case homicide detective, popular national speaker, and best-selling author. In fact, he was so successful as a cold case detective that he's been featured on NBC's Dateline more than any other detective. Keith Morrison, who's the news correspondent on Dateline, actually referred to him as the evidence whisperer. His work also appeared on Court TV and Fox News. He continues to consult on cold case investigations while serving as a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He's an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University and a faculty member at Summit Ministries. He's got his master's degree in theological studies, and you may have seen him in a little movie called God's Not Dead 2. He has a great website, blog, and podcast at coldcasechristianity.com. So, Jay Werner Wallace. Jim, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thanks, for You know, I've been looking forward to this. We kind of had a chance to meet each other originally a couple of years ago um, at the cross Examine Instructors Academy that Frank Turek runs, where you know we yes. kind of get to hang out with all the other people who teach apologetics around the country and, and kind of learn from each other. And you've been to that a couple times now, and, and then we did, did a conference at your church uh, about a year mm-hmm. ago. So, I've been looking forward to, to doing this podcast with you.
0: Yeah, and it's it's great to have you on. And for anybody listening, if you're into apologetics and you're kind of wondering how you can take that to the next level, if you want to maybe start teaching a class at church or even pursuing it as a career or even on the level of your small group, if you just want to get better at presenting apologetics material, I just want to recommend what what Jim just mentioned. That's the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. It was really actually life-changing for me. And you you go for three days and get one-on-one training from guys like Jay Warner Wallace and Frank Turek and Brett Kunkel, Sean McDowell. And it's it's an amazing experience if you can do it. So you can go to crossexamined.org for more information on that. I really recommend it. So uh, so Jim, I'm, I'm fascinated by your story and the events that led up to you becoming a Christian out of atheism. And uh, you know, your story is not a typical one. You didn't go to a, a crusade event and hear the gospel and walk down to the front and fill out a card. Uh, it was a much longer and more intense. Process for you, and I'm excited for uh, us to get to hear that story. But before we get into that, give us a little bit of your background. Were you raised with any kind of religion?
2: Um, Yeah, well, my mom was a cultural Catholic as a child when she was young, and um, so when I was uh, younger, also, uh, she uh, was—I would say maybe a holiday at that time, kind kind of a holiday Catholic, where we would, you know, go on occasion, but. But she divorced. My dad went and 1964. And back in those days, if you had were divorced in, in the church, at least in the parish that, that she was attending, um, you know, she wasn't as well received maybe as she would have been had she not been divorced. Um, and I just looked at that and I just thought, oh, this is that's. I never felt like we, it, it, you know, that ever fit in. I never mm. bought it. She, she wanted me to to go through, you know, confirmation, all of that. I refused to do it. Mm. Um, I so I didn't. <laughs> but you know, right. um, but I, I was just was not interested. Um, and so that was always kind of maybe there in the, in the shadows, but never as a positive thing that was kind of uh, part of our lives for me anyway. It was always as a kind of a, a negative uh, mm. thing that I just did. I rejected And Maybe maybe a lot of my rejection. Um, was based on on some of the the practical outcomes of what I was seeing in 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 the way that the parish was treating her. I think that's probably fair to say, but I just also <laughs> thought that the story was preposterous. I, I mean I wasn't like against it like I wasn't this guy who was out to defeat every Christian I met <laughs> right. because I, I just didn't think that there was much sense in uh, arguing about Peter Pan or arguing about any other piece of uh, obvious fiction and that's the way mm-hmm. I saw it I saw it as obvious fiction. There's there's nothing uh, worth uh, examining here. But but my wife had a very different experience. Um, mm-hmm. Susie's experience uh, growing up was very positive. Um, her her mom was uh, at the t- uh, you know much more probably oh I don't know just not not serious but um, you know had a great positive experience in Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And so Susie would, would have said that all along that she never doubted for a minute that that God existed. But uh, when I met her, when we were teenagers, you know, we just never talked about it, Um, Mm. and um, it was not something. I think she knew how I felt, and and she wasn't, and she she also had never read uh, the Bible, um, really didn't understand uh, what Christian theology taught about salvation. You know, just she had an experience going to mass. On occasion, that she thought of as positive, and her mom uh, actually is a really interesting person. She she was somebody who had, had read scripture, and was really a committed. I think you'd have to say she's a very committed believer. Um, and maybe wasn't even always you know in step with her parish. In other words, she was mm-hmm. really a Bible reading Catholic, um, which I thought was interesting, right?
1: Because yeah, yeah. most of
2: the Catholics I knew growing up were not necessarily in the Word. But yeah. but this was not something that Susie ever approached with me. Um, we just didn't talk about it, and so for the first eighteen years we were together, we never that was never really a part of our lives. Now, when we had kids, I think Susie was more interested in. Okay, well, I had a good experience growing up. Should we bring our own kids to mm. church? And I thought, well, I'll go if <laughs> you want to go. I'm not. I don't think it's true. But my dad's the same way. You know, he's a very committed uh, atheist. You can't budge him. Mm. But he yeah. would be more than happy to go to church with you. Because he wow. thinks that he would rather live in a country in which there are Christians than in a country where there aren't any Christians. He thinks it's useful.
0: Wow, uh, that's interesting. Yeah, isn't
2: it? I mean, he this yeah. thinks it's a very useful delusion that produces, um, you know, kind of good um, uh, uh, people. It yeah. Does, doesn't matter to him if uh, those people are, um, are believing something true or not. So, so he, yeah. yeah, So, so, so he, he stays in that position, right? He's always stayed in that position where he's, if you want to go great, I'm glad it's working for you. Uh, he's, he's, he married a second time and his second wife is Mormon and he's more than happy that his kids on that side were raised Mormon. He isn't because to him, it's just all, and that's really probably where I would have said, I'll go with you. Don't think it's true, but if you want to, you know, I I don't see any harm in it. Um, uh, but then I, I started the, when we started attending a church here in our community. Um, this I'd never been in a church. I, mean, I also had only had as a very very young child, maybe you know, uh, pre uh, elementary or first couple of years of elementary, were the times that I remember going to mass. Didn't do it after that, and um, so I never knew anybody who could talk about what the Bible said. What, what was contained in the, what, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the gospels? How many gospels are there? Uh, You know, what, what's the structure of the new Testament? I didn't know any of that stuff. So, so when we got to this church, here's a guy at the pastor there who was actually, you know, reciting verses out of scripture and and describing Jesus in a way that was relatively attractive to me. He he described him as smart, Mm. as articulate, as uh, wise, as somebody upon whose teaching all of Western civilization rests. And I thought, okay. I bought a Bible to see if that was true. And that's really, for me, how how the whole thing started. I was reading through the Gospels, but by this time I had a template that I used to determine when people were lying to me and to determine when an eyewitness is reliable. And I simply applied that template to the Gospels. Because by that time, I'd been lied to for probably close to 10 years as an investigator. So I was used to hearing these lies. And and I, I had a template in place that helped me to file cases with the district attorney, because I knew I had to have witnesses of a certain nature before I could get a filing. So that's what I started to do with Scripture.
0: Wow, that is that is such an interesting thing to me. So you bought a Bible, yep. and you started investigating the claims that the Gospels were making. Is that where you started in the Gospels?
2: Yeah, I stayed in the Gospels for a long time. Um, because yeah. I just, I'm thinking there's a way, you know, look, these are allegedly claims that somebody, and I didn't even care at the time if the names attributed to the Bible. That doesn't matter to me. The question is, is this a record that someone at some point said they saw occur? And Mm -hmm. now they're recording it. Or like like in Luke's account, they're passing it on to someone like Luke who's recording it. That's Mm -hmm. as close as I need to get. I I didn't really care Mm -hmm. about how I would interpret these activities. So, for example, when I get a witness on the stand and I'll I'll say, what did you see? Well, I saw X. The question we're not allowed to ask the witness is, well, what do you think that means? Mm. Because that's completely conjecture. And and so you're going to get an objection right away. That this doesn't doesn't matter what this witness thinks the suspect meant by doing that, or what what the witness thinks this means on overall. All the witness can talk about is what did he or she see occur. Yeah. They're not allowed to conject to to to, to uh, you know uh, talk about what they think that means. So for me, I don't really care what anyone uh, you know the theology the theological position that someone might hold after the fact is not nearly as important to me as, well, what did you really see though? Cause I can figure out on my own, you know, I mm-hmm. can, put, I can read my own inferences uh, into this, but I just need to know what the facts are. So tell me what, what you saw. So that's why I stayed in the gospels for a long time. Um, You know, a
0: lot of atheists will read through the Gospels and say, you know, there's no way this is truthful because there are so many differing details in these Gospel accounts, so it has to be a lie. So what would you say to somebody who would say something like that, and how was your perspective when you're reading through and you're finding some of these differences, how did that hit you as a, a detective?
2: Well, I just, I, that's, they just never worked with witnesses if they're saying that, because that's, that's a standard that is so common. That's an occurrence that's so common, and I, no eyewitnesses will ever agree, ever. And this is why the first and only um, command most um, detectives or requests that most detectives have in the middle of the night when you call us out is, look, if there are officers who are still on scene, Please have them identify and separate the eyewitnesses. That's the that's the only request I ever have. Mm. Make sure when I get there, the eyewitnesses have not had a chance to talk to each other. And why do we want that? Because we know if they talk to each other, we're going to get one story repeated over and over and over again. And what we want are the apparently contradictory stories, because that's exactly what real eyewitness testimony looks like. Mm. And it's not as though... Um, there wasn't somebody early on who could have, uh, you know, in essence synchronized the entire set of accounts and given us one. I mean, Tatian does this later in history, where he takes all the gospels and gives us one um, version, you know, kind of one overall picture of Jesus. But that's not what we want. We we want the things that have what might even appear to be contradictory at first, because they only appear to be contradictory because we're not seeing something. We're not. We're not. Under able to understand, you know this happens all the time in my eyewitness statements. And if the eyewitnesses are still alive, I can go back and ask clarification questions that will smooth out the differences. The mm-hmm. problem here, of course, is I can't ask those clarification questions. But before you ask the clarification questions, you're going to have what appear to be like there's no way you can resolve these two things, um, and you just know that that defense attorneys love that. And they do their best to convince jurors that those differences mean that everyone's invalidated. But jurors never fall for that. I mean, in the Mm. end, jurors are like, okay, now I get it. They're all telling us the truth. Uh, There may be some, some slight variations, but that's based on... You know, who's got a better sense of what clothing um, brands are? Who's got a better sense of what weapon models are? Who's got a better sense of, of you know, who was in a, a more stressful uh, point at the time of the crime, so maybe they weren't seeing things as clearly? Who who felt safer from a distance and was able to sit and really kind of watch and study because they didn't even know, that the, the bad guy didn't even know they were in the room with them? So, so lots of different perspectives geographically, uh, historically, how you're wired, what you're interested in, what you're back backgrounds are all of these things weigh into what you see and don't see and and so you have so also what's what are you trying to talk about you know if you talk to the one of the witnesses at the tomb and you and they only describe one angel and and you've got another account where you've got more than one angel well i don't have the opportunity to go back and ask the question okay look you're only describing one angel. Are you saying that's all that was there? Because then they would say, well, no, there was more than one there, but 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 I'm talking about the one who talked to me was this mm-hmm. one. Okay, well, great. I don't get a chance to ask the clarification question. So early on, it's going to look like there's a difference between the two accounts when in fact, this is just a point of what is that author or what is that witness trying to communicate? And if he's trying to communicate a a, a, a dialogue, an interaction, well, then don't be surprised if he only talks about the one person with whom he's interacting. So, so that's the kind of stuff you see in the gospels, but that's really common. And so that, that never gave me any pause for, I didn't like read through the gospels and go, oh yeah, this can't be true because there's some differences. In fact, Mm -hmm. I read through the gospels and said, this kind of looks like what I always see. Um, Mm. So I didn't disqualify. It just kept it in the running.
0: Wow. That's, that's interesting. So as you're going through the gospels and you're, you're kind of seeing these themes emerge that this is looking like actual eyewitness testimony. Maybe these guys were telling the truth. What was it that sort of took you from that to, I'm going to become a Christian?
2: Well, uh, that's a lot longer process, right? Because you could believe that something is true, yet not surrender to it. Um, Mm. You could uh, get to a place where you, you, you think, well, the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels seem to be reliably attested. Um, And that might open up your thinking in terms of supernatural events. It might open up your thinking in terms of the kind of wisdom that Jesus proclaims. But then to turn a corner... Um, you know, to, to to say that there's a savior or somebody who claims to be a savior, that's one kind of realization. To say that you're in need of a savior, that's another kind of realization. And that's yeah. where I think the totality of of the New Testament is helpful, right? So once you're uh, you're settled and you, for me and I believed that the Gospels were reliable and telling me something true. Well, then you've got another step to examine what they say about you, not what they say about Jesus. What do they say about you as the reader? And uh, once you start changing your focus on to what they say about you, well, then you do get to a place where you're like, okay, now, now I'm ready to take a different kind of step mm-hmm. uh, uh, toward um, surrendering, you know, t- toward facing my need, um, understanding who I am realistically and what my need for a Savior is. That's totally different, and that takes longer. So so because I'm such a... Um, A step, you know, I step methodical approach to things. Uh, That doesn't happen for me. I didn't have like this emotional kind of uh, moment. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I I kind of, when when people ask me about this afterwards, I I honestly thought that this, well, I'd have no real compelling testimony in the sense that I don't even know why we. We in the Christian um, family seem to th- to think that the most persuasive thing we could ever share about our religious beliefs is how we got saved. Right. Um, I just thought I had this the same experience everyone did because I didn't really know any Christians who had kind of told me their conversion story to compare mine to. Mm-hmm. So I just figured out, don't all Christians come in this way? They, they, they read the Gospels and determine if they're telling us something true and then uh, read through to see what they also say we ought to do, you know, who we are, and then respond to that. I, I mean, honestly, I, I could not have made that kind of decision personally unless I had every bit of information I could possibly collect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that's not true for everyone. And, no, and- it's not.
0: And interestingly, when I teach apologetics, I like to start my classes by asking, why are you a Christian? And I get the same answers every time. It's something along the lines of, it's a feeling in my heart, or um, I had some kind of experience, or I witnessed a miracle, or I was on drugs, and now I'm not, or just all kinds of answers like that. So why are you a Christian? And what would you say to the person that only had answers like those?
2: Well, I get frustrated um, because uh, you're, you're right about it that, Um, I get frustrated only because um, as I started to kind of go through the the country speaking on the evidence for Christianity, I realized that a lot of Christians were like, well, why are you even talking about this? I mean, I'm already a Christian. Mm -hmm. I already believe this is true. This is really not important to me. And I thought, really? Well, so tell me why you're a Christian then. And I started asking those questions. You know, why are you a Christian? And you're right. That's a very huge set of, but it's not even the most uh, common answer. The most common answer is that I was raised in the church. That is by far the most common answer. But the second group of answers is always some experience. Something happened that confirmed for me either I was transformed, somebody I knew was transformed, um, Uh, I saw something that I interpreted as a miracle of God. Uh, somebody was healed. Prayers were answered something. I experienced something that confirmed for me that Christianity is true. Well, here's the problem with all that, of course, is that if you ask Mormons, why Mormons are Mormons, they're going to tell you the same two categories of answers. I was raised that way, or I've had some experience, the burning in the bosom, whatever it may be. I've had an experience that confirmed for me that Joseph Smith's a prophet of God and the book of Mormon is true. Um, and, and so, and that's by the way, the same reason why Muslims are Muslims and Buddhists mm-hmm. are Buddhists and Hindus are Hindus. Um, so it turns out that that we, that we end up giving the same answer that everyone else does. Which means, and by the way, we can't all be right because we all believe different opposing things about God, right. or we we figure out okay, there's got to be a better answer than that. And I just don't think that's even a biblical answer. I think that if you look mm-hmm. at the history of Christianity. You'll see that Jesus was very much somebody who repeatedly said, If you don't believe what I'm saying, you have the testimony of John the Baptist, you have the testimony of the Father, you have the evidence of the miracles that I'm working in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those miracles served as evidence of what to back up his claims. And then when John the Baptist has doubts, so what does he do? He sends his disciples to Jesus to ask. Mm-hmm. He's in custody, so he sends his disciples. And at that moment, you could get, you could have gotten a very pastoral kind of twenty. 21st century American pastoral answer, which is you just need to believe. Mm. You need to trust, you know, um, to trust more. You need that. Why are you having such little faith? You, you, instead, what Jesus does is he says, Well, stand by. And he does three miracles in front of John's disciples and he Mm. sends them back to John and he says, Tell John what you just said. Just saw. And, Mm. and uh, that's a very powerful. In very consistent way that Jesus continued to make the case, um, mm. he didn't say you just if you need to know that Scripture is true; it's God breathed. Therefore, you need to presuppose its truth value. He didn't say, you know, how were you raised. He didn't point to any of the things that sometimes we in the church will point our young people to when they have mm. a question. Right. Instead, he said, "Well, let me show you the evidence," mm. and and that's I think the approach that we ought to take. And I think what happens is is that you. You get to this place where you'll take a couple of passages of scripture and kind of misdefine uh, the word faith. So if you look at in Hebrews where it's the, you know the, uh, it's, uh, having faith in, in, in things that are unseen, well okay, well, well yes, uh, you can't see the evidence that the first eyewitnesses saw. You can't see it because only they saw it. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to trust in something that you didn't see with your own eyes. And even in some things you cannot see because we're talking about a spiritual reality that you're not going to be able to visibly see. Mm-hmm. But, but we're going to give you more than enough evidence you can examine to make the claim for the thing you can't see. And I think the, the point is not that we're going to just look at Because if that's the case, if you just have to have faith in something that can't be seen and we can't show you any evidence to make the case, well, then everyone could say that. I mean, Mormons can do that. I mean, that, that version of faith does not help you. Um, mm-hmm. Determine truth relative to others, right? right? So, so I think that's 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 part of it, and and I think the other verse we sometimes will see is where you know Thomas is in the room with Jesus and has doubts, and and he says, unless I can touch Jesus, I'm not going to believe it for myself. And then, sure enough. Um, uh, he approaches Jesus eventually and, and appears to Thomas and he, he puts his hands and, you know, he, he grasps Jesus or he, he doesn't really quite get to that point before he falls on his knees and says, you know, that he believes. And, and mm-hmm. Jesus says to him, hey, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Uh, But what are they believing in? The very next line, by the way, the very next verse, Jesus then continues to give many uh, proofs to the disciples. Well, Mm -hmm. why would you need to do that if if you're more blessed to have no proofs than you Mm -hmm. are to have proofs? No, what he's saying is there are going to be a bunch of people who are not going to see what you guys have seen. Mm -hmm. There aren't. They're not going to see this. But they're going to be blessed, as he says in the prayer in the Gospel of John, they're going to be blessed through your testimony of what you guys have seen. And, and so, so, again, we have to rely on the direct evidence we see in the Gospels, the testimony of the Gospel authors. It's really hard to get away from evidence in the Christian worldview because, mm-hmm. because the Gospels are given as eyewitness accounts of the person of Jesus, and that is called direct evidence. If you said, no, I just presuppose that the Gospels are true, well, what are you presupposing? The Mm -hmm. eyewitness testimony of those people who saw and knew Jesus, you're you're trusting indirect evidence. You can't get away from an evidential approach. Mm -hmm. So it's better for us to, to kind of go and lean in heavily, I think, and become evidentialists as Christians.
0: Yeah. And, and you actually, as an apologist, refer to yourself actually with that word as an evidentialist. And um, in as I teach apologetics, I have found that there's a lot of resistance from Christians to this idea, because in some way, they believe that following the evidence is somehow in contradiction to having faith or to listening to the voice of God or something along those lines. So what's your response to that type of idea that evidence shouldn't matter because we should just have faith?
2: Right. So what is that? It just comes down to the definition of what faith is, right? So, so how I look at this is like all of us, when we have faith, it's because we believe something completely, even though we don't have a complete set of evidences, in other words, we believe and trust that something is true, even though I can't answer every question, and even though I can, there's not a complete set of evidences I can, I can assess that will answer every question. I have to step out beyond what I, I can show is true to something that I cannot completely demonstrate with, with a complete set of evidences. Well, okay, fine. But that is very different than uh, a blind faith. So in other words, there's three ways of defining faith. Let's put it this way.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, One way is to say, okay, well, I've got an unreasonable faith. This is belief in something in spite of evidence to the contrary, Now, um, I always use the example that if you believe that frogs will give you warts, well, we know we have evidence for where warts come from. They don't come from frogs. So if you continue to believe that, you're believing in something in spite of evidence to the contrary. It's an unreasonable belief. Now, Mormonism, quite frankly, is an unreasonable belief given all the evidence to the contrary. It's not that there's just some open, unanswerable questions. It's that we there's claims about the first century, about really about 600 years before the first century and about 400 after in the North American continent that are made in the Book of Mormon. And if you examine those claims, they are not true. There's not a single bit of archaeological support. In fact, there's actually evidence to the contrary because they actually claim that the first inhabitants of the North American continent were Jews who came over on a boat. And we know from the DNA studies that's not true. Uh, The first occupants of the North American continent were Northeast Asians. So the point I'm trying to make here is that you're believing something for which you actually have good evidence. You have evidence from the book of Abraham that shows that that Joseph did not translate that book properly. We have the original manuscripts on the book of Abraham, which is in the Pearl of Great Price, that do not match the translation of Joseph Smith. I mean, this is now you're believing something that's unreasonable because we have evidence to the contrary. Now, the second form of faith I always talk about is blind faith. You could be right. You could be wrong because you put your faith in something you haven't even examined. And that's that. And sometimes you put yourself in the right place accidentally. You know, you, you, maybe you were raised by parents who happened to believe something true, but you've never even asked it. Why is that true? So you don't even need any evidence. You just believe it's true. And you happen to be in the right place, but you're not there for an evidential reason. You're just there because you happen to be born in that situation. The third kind of faith is what I call forensic faith, and that is that I've got good evidence that was shown to me, but it leaves a, there's an end of the evidence trail, and I still have to step across the, the 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 gap from the end of the evidence trail to the to the fullness of my belief, and I'm going to have to step across that. And by the way, everyone does this if you mm-hmm. believe that, that the naturalism can explain the universe without a divine being. Well, you've got several unanswered questions yourself. You have to trust that you'll someday be able to answer or that somehow science will sometime, somehow answer these things, you're mm-hmm. still stepping across the end of an evidence trail to the, the fullest possible belief. So I think in the end, uh, a forensic faith still requires a step of faith. But it's not an uninformed step of faith. It's, it's informed by as much evidence as we can collect. that all seems to point us in the right direction. And then we step across whatever evidential <laughs> gap there is. We ask jurors to do this all the time. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to do it until they get beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's, I think, a reasonable standard. And so I think that, that Christians are asked to, to step off in a direction of forensic faith, a faith that is informed by evidence, mm-hmm. even though I won't be able to answer every possible question. But by the way, no matter what world view you're, in, you're in, you can't answer every question. How do we get from molecules to man? There are so many uh, open questions still in Darwinian evolution. How does the universe come into existence from nothing? I mean, how does life originate in the universe? How do we form consciousness from a purely materialistic process? I mean, these are a lot of unanswered questions, even if you hold to atheism. So so, uh, everyone does this. I just think the best evidence points to Christianity being true. And so that's a smaller gap to step across.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned a forensic faith, and that's actually the title of the third book in the trilogy that you wrote that started with a book, which all of these for the listeners out there, are just fantastic books that you really need to get. So the first one is called Cold Case Christianity, which walks us through Jim's journey through uh, looking at the Gospels and the eyewitness testimony, uh, tracing them back to find out the chain of custody with the Gospels. Very, very interesting book that I've actually read. I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you I've read it three times. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Thanks. Uh, and then um, the next one is God's Crime Scene, which has more to do with the evidence of for God in the universe. It's kind of more of a science-based book um, that's going to take you through uh, intelligent design and and just those types of evidences for the existence of God outside of uh, our world. And then the third book is Forensic Faith, which I actually reviewed on my blog, which was a fantastic book, and and Jim just kind of explained some of that. But I'm excited to ask you about two other books that you've written with your wife, Susie. Uh, Jim has written Cold case Christianity for kids and God's crime scene for kids. And I was able to go through God's crime scene for kids with my daughter, Dylan, who's eight. And she, I've told you this, Jim, she loved the book, just even as a book, she just couldn't wait to hear the rest of the story and what was going to happen next with these characters that she was so engaged with. So tell us a little bit about your approach to your children's books and why parents need to get their hands on these.
2: Well, uh, that's been the most satisfying thing I think we've done so far and we didn't expect you know, the publisher came back to us and said, would you be interested in doing children's books? And you, know, you have to get to a certain point in terms of whether the adult books do well enough before they'll even consider doing that. So we didn't really ever know that we would ever get to that point. And when they came to us you know, we had been working in, in we started in children's ministry because our kids were young when we got saved. So we thought, okay, we're going to, we're going to work in children's ministry to hang out with our kids. And then when they got older, we were in youth ministry, then finally in high school ministry. So um, we knew that we loved working with young people and that we also knew that most doubt in the uh, minds of young people when they, when you leave the, the church in your 20s and those who have left the church, when they're polled as to when, um, when that really started happening for them, when they really started having the, the most, the, the doubts that they, they thought led them out of the church, mm-hmm. uh, you'd be amazed at how young they'll point back to. Uh, they'll mm-hmm. point back to like sometimes in that range of 10 to 13. Um there's a web on our website at coldcasechristianity.com. We have a, uh, if you go into the search bar and just type in the word updated, it's the only uh, article that I continue to update. And it's really uh, an article that says, Our young people are really leaving Christianity, or really leaving the church. And uh, in there, you'll see I have concluded the most recent studies that I can find about this trend away from the church. And two of the most recent studies, sadly, point to that young age in which people start to have their first. They're really first doubts, um, and, and it's, it's, it's tough to, 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 to watch. It's tough to kind of assimilate that because we're all raising junior highers and thinking, really, it's happening this early? Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. So we thought if we could write books for 8 to 12 for the kind of pre-junior high years and we could ask and answer the questions that many of these young students say are the questions that led them out, if we could ask and answer them before the culture asks and answers them, Right, Mm -hmm. that would be, I think, be be um, be powerful. Um, You know, that like I said, this one CARA study, C A R A National Study, in just last year, found that sixty three percent said that they left between the ages of ten and seventeen. Wow. So I think that's we've got to get to our students early enough to answer these questions. So, so we started to think, okay, well, how do we engage stu- Like I know there's lots of good books out there. If you're familiar with Lee Strobel's work, you know that all of his mm-hmm. case, case four books have been translated into to kids' books. Yeah. And so we just didn't want to have another set of books out there that gave you the facts. Those books are already out there, and they're good books. Uh, we thought, well, okay, let's do something a little bit different. Let's, let's create a, a series of characters that would stay together through all the books that would be kids who are going through an explorer academy. We, I went through an explorer academy as a kid that was mm-hmm. associated with our police department, and we learned some investigative police skills, and then you get to serve at the police department until you're 21, and then you can hire on. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what if we had a, a detective's academy for kids in which the lead investigator, the lead instructor was a detective who would be teaching the kids how to solve a mystery that's not related to Christianity or to theism, But the mystery, is, we hope, is the thing that keeps kids turning the page. Now, while they're solving the mystery, they're going to learn all the skills they need to address the issues in the adult books. You know, does Jesus, did he really rise from the grave? Uh, Did he really live? Uh, does, Does God really exist? So we wanted to cover all those things, right? But we wanted to do it in the context of a mystery that, uh, would have like a narrative, you know, uh, so it can kind of stand on its own. And then mm-hmm. we thought we'll, we'll put it in first person. So you're, uh, the reader is part of this group of, of students. Yeah. And I love that. I uh, loved and that some people don't, some people like it more than others. Uh, I thought, mm-hmm. that, but, but almost all the kids I know who read it were like, they felt that really pulled them in Yeah. because they're reading it in first person. Uh, now what we had to be is very careful. I don't want to put thoughts in kids' heads, so I don't want to give them opinions that, they, that yeah. they you have to hold your own your own inferences I so I had to be careful not to make to make sure I didn't cross that boundary but but what we're doing here is hoping that and by the, and we have a casemakers academy online, casemakersacademy.com, where kids can watch a video for each chapter, print out activity sheets, and every chapter of the book parallels a chapter in the adult book. So we have parent guides. So if you really wanted to go over the top, you'd be reading the adult book as your kids are reading the kid's book. So you're always going to be five or six steps ahead of your kids in terms of all these evidences. So that's what we're trying to do with the kid's books. And we just finished the outline for Forensic Faith for Kids. So that'll come out in August of uh, next year.
0: Well, it was a great bonding time for my daughter and I. We loved reading it together. We loved filling out the the worksheets and doing the activities. And I uh, just can't recommend it enough to Christian parents to get Jim's books. Cold Case Christianity and Cold Case Christianity for Kids, and then God's Crime Scene, God's Crime Scene for Kids, and then Forensic Faith is the most recent in the trilogy of adult books, and I'm excited to hear that we got a kids version coming up soon. So the website is coldcasechristianity.com, and you can, of course, get all these books on Amazon, and I'll post links as well to where you can connect with Jim online. He's got a great Twitter page where he shares great articles all the time and a great Facebook page. So Jim, thanks so much for being on the show today.
2: Oh, I appreciate it. You know, I, I'm sure I appreciate your ministry, by the way, uh, I, I talk about you often uh, because of all the people we talked about who kind of stepped out um, from uh, like like me, you were a tent maker. You basically you had a whole rich life uh, and you decided, I'm going to add this to my plate of responsibilities. You've done a great job, by the way. So Aww. I'm just proud of, to be a small part of that journey with you.
0: Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate that. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to sign up to receive my blog posts and podcasts by email, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. Or you can simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes.